0: Forward in the book of Genesis. So, we have spent the last nine uh, sessions in Genesis on Abraham. And so, here we are. We're finishing up Abraham's life today on the 10th message on his life and his faith, or maybe was that faith? We're not really sure. Um, and so, as we do, uh, something significant happens in the text that I, you may not have uh, seen. And here's the thing that shifts. Um, it's really this, like in the previous chapter, if you remember, Aaron preached on this last week. It was, it's really this, this penultimate climactic scene in Abraham's life where God tests him. Will he withhold the thing that he loves from him, or will he sacrifice it on the idol in his worship of Yahweh? And of course, we know that Abraham uh, lays his son upon the altar, and just in the nick of time... God provides a substitute for Isaac. And this is to uh, foresee all that is in Jesus, right? That he provides a substitute in our place. But if you noticed in Genesis 22, God is very deliberate. He is very obvious. And he is very audible. Now in Genesis 23, 24, and 25, in Abraham's twilight years, God moves into the background. And he doesn't talk at all in Genesis 23, 24, and 25. The God who has been obvious, the God who has been audible, the God who has stepped in physically to provide a ram in the thicket now fades into the background. And now your experience probably starts to kind of go, oh, wow, yeah, God has not ever spoken audibly to me, not ever provided a ram in the thicket that I could see, like physically, um, and yet I live with a God who's in the background of my life. And So today, really, it's this focus on the God of the background, the God who is moving things, no longer speaking audibly or maybe so obviously in physical things, but now he's going to start speaking through circumstances. And can you see that as God moving, or do you chalk it up to, well, I mean, just, yeah, I mean, it just kind of worked out, right? I mean, lucky for me, uh, things just kind of, I must have done some things right in my life. And uh, so, yeah, all the little magic fairy dust kind of just twinkled just right, and man, I'm feeling good about it. We may not ascribe to that, uh, but I think that it's in us more than we might think. So as we look now at these three episodes of of the last episodes of Abraham's life, what we're going to do, right, is we're no longer going to dissect his faith because we've been doing that. We've dissected his faith when he sent his wife into Pharaoh's harem. We've dissected his faith when he sent his wife again into Abimelech's harem. Or when he had this plan B or his wife had plan B and he listened to the voice of his wife just like Adam did in the garden and he knew Hagar. Right? We dissected all that. We're going, How is this guy a man of faith? The same way you are. The same way that I am. What We tend to forget is, and when we dissect all the, the question marks of his life and our own, we tend to forget that time that he went up on that mountain with Isaac, and he declared, me and the boy will return. We're going to go worship, but we're coming back. Even before something was provided for him. What a man of great faith. And so in our our journey with Abraham, right, we have seen him respond when God audibly or obviously intervened and spoke to him. It is in the silent waiting time where he has wandered, right? Remember all the years that he waited for that, that son? Remember all that time that God promised something? And there was this huge gap between promise and provision. Those were the days where he was a little bit wandering, and i would imagine the same is for you i would imagine that it's super easy to follow god when he he makes things obvious but when things aren't so black and white when there's a whole lot of gray i would imagine that those are the times that we struggle as well so what do we do with a god who chooses to remain in the background what do we do when he, doesn't, when he doesn't seemingly answer our prayers in the time and in the way that we would hope? Without the audible voice of God, how are we supposed to walk in faith? And again, Abraham shows us how to walk by faith, not by sight, certainly not by formulas, but instead trusting God where there is this gap between promise and provision. So, God is not audible, at least, at least not uh, in Abraham's life at this point. He's instead in the background, and I will just implore you to listen to these stories and to listen to this sermon, preferring the God that's in the background. So why would I ask you to prefer the God that's in the background? Isn't it easier to hear him and do it when he says it? Isn't it easier to follow him? Do you need him in those days, or are you just really thankful that he made it obvious? The kind of person that God is forming, that He wants to form in you, usually gets formed in the crucible, in the uncertainty, in the darkness, in the silence. And dare I say, you would not be the person that God intends for you to be without the God that fades into the background. So I implore you to listen. With man, I don't, I don't know that I want that, but I think I need that. I I need that God that stays in the background. So. To get a glimpse of that God, uh, we need to remember three promises that God has made to Abraham. Here are the three promises, right? We've, well, there's more than three, but here are the ones that we're going to focus on for 23, 24, and 25. That he would be, number one, a father of many nations. That he would also possess all the land of Canaan, if you'll recall. And that he would have numerous offspring. So numerous that you couldn't count them like the, sea, like the sand on the seashore or like the stars... In the sky and what we'll find from these chapters 23 24 25 is that God has not forgotten his promises even amidst all the Hagar and Ishmael even amidst the harem oh no she's really my sister it'll be fine even amidst all sorts of uncertainty God has not forgotten his promises so as that as our background let's enter into some of this text a little bit The first thing that I want us to understand is that what is the God of the background doing amidst really sad circumstances? And that is this first, in loss, God provides. In loss, God provides. Could you imagine yourself? Maybe you can imagine yourself. You've worked your whole life. You get to the point where you're finally ready to make that retired life. You're finally kind of ready to get that, that, that twilight years exactly like you wanted it with you and your bride. And all of a sudden, she falls ill. She dies. And the dreams of your twilight years are shattered in a moment. Could you imagine that for yourself? If you're 30 in this room or much older, this is a reality that none of us want to face. And yet, it was the reality that Abraham, the man of faith that God had promised so many things to, was now facing. Abraham was still a stranger in a foreign land. He is now 137 years old. Isaac is is 37 years old. And it has been approximately 62 years since God first appeared to him and said, leave this place, go, and I'm going to give you all that we've just talked about. 62 years, six decades has he walked faithfully. And yet the promises have not yet been fulfilled. It is important to note that Sarah's death brought to the forefront this gap between promise and provision. That God had promised land to Abraham, but Abraham had no land. And now the death of his wife demanded a place for burial. And So what would Abraham do? And I would also ask you, what would you do in this circumstance? Would you freak out? I would. Would you? This is probably actually what I would do. I would start to um, get super holy in my prayers, and then um, I would point back to a track record. I don't know if you uh, forgot about how much of a good boy I've been. Um, but if you could look back at how at my track record, I'd really appreciate some payback. I'd really appreciate for you to pay me according to reward that I think I'm owed. Abraham doesn't do that. He's not a man of formula. He is a man of faith. And instead, he knows he needs some land to bury his wife to get closure, bury her away from him, he says, away from my sight, somewhere where we can find closure, but so that he can also continue to walk in faith for the years ahead. So he goes to the city gate. And if you know anything about how things were done, the city gate was where the business was done in any ancient city. And he goes to the city gate and he says, Behold, I'm Abraham. And they all go, Oh, we know who you are. Yeah, you're a blessed one. Like you're you're like a prince. We know exactly who you are. He goes, Well, man, my, my wife has passed. I need a burial place for her. And they say, Pick out the best temporary burial place that you can find. Well, you you name it. And you can put her to rest right now. Um, You know, obviously, it's not going to be your land because you can't buy land because you're a foreigner. But if you can just, you know, but by all means, temporarily, you can lay her to rest. Death will do its thing, and then you can kind of take up her bones later on, and that's just fine with us. And he goes, "Oh no, no, I don't think you understand. Um, I need a permanent burial place. If you can call out Ephron, anybody know Ephron?" Here at the gate, and of course, of course, Ephron is standing there. He's sitting there, and he goes, "Yeah, I'm Ephron. What you need, man? Hey, the end of your field is beautiful. There's a cave there. There are some trees there. I would like to purchase that land from you, and bury my wife there." And Ephron goes, "Oh no, 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 no! By all means, let me just give you that land, that cave, and that land." Again, you can just temporarily use it. I'm not ready to sell it. Okay, we got got plans for that for my grandkids. But, you know, by all means, you can temporarily use it for the next, say, five, ten years. Come back, and we'll be fine. And that's what the interchange is going on here. And the Bible spends two verses on Sarah's death and 17 verses on this negotiation. Now, if you're reading... And I hope that you have, you've got to start thinking what is going on? Why is all this talk about the negotiations where Abraham finally gets the price of Ephraim's field of 400 shekels? To put that into perspective, when David uh, uh, purchased the Temple Mount, it was 50 shekels. Okay? When David purchased the Temple Mount, generations later, it was 50 shekels. Ephraim says, hey man, look, I was willing to give it to you temporarily, but if you're just hard-pressed and you really want this land, I'm gonna tell you what, man, like we're gonna drive that price up a little bit. So here's, here's, here's my price, 400 shekels, thinking probably there's no way he'll ever take that. And Abraham goes, sold. I'll take it. Why? Well, let's discover. What's going on in the background? What is God?" orchestrating in the background again we have to remember what god has said this will come up on the screen genesis 17:8 and there is a promise here i will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of sojournings he's a he's a foreigner he's a sojourner god has promised years before decades before this land will be given to you, all the land of Canaan. And now at 137, he has zero. For an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. Now look at the word play now in Genesis 23, 17 and 18. Notice the words. So the field of Ephron of Machpelah, sure. Big Mac, let's call him Big Mac. Was, uh, which was to the east of Mamre, the field with the cave that was in it and all the trees. You see how they're marking it out? It's very specific. That were in the field. Throughout that whole its whole area was made over to Abraham. What are they saying? They've now deeded this field over to Abraham as a possession. I will promise to give you this land as your possession. And he has none of it. It's going to be yours. And he could have said, well, they're temporarily giving it to me here. Maybe I'll take it now and kind of negotiate later. He instead says, I'll pay the full price now to where God provides exactly what he said he would do. It is through the greatest loss of Abraham's life that God provides something that he promised decades before. Just a little piece of land. And it was the beginning of a whole nation. What was started out as a burial place became the birthplace of something God had in his mind decades, dare I say, an eternity beforehand. I don't know what you've been walking through. I don't know what sorts of deaths have happened in this last year. I do know two in the life of this church. I don't know what sort of personal dreams you've had to put aside and bury into the ground. I don't know if there's been a career or if there's been some loss in your family, whether it be immediate or extended. But let's trust in the God of provision far beyond a promise or our circumstances, because where there is a burial place, I mean, there is a promise being fulfilled. I know that's, that sounds like charismatic and somehow like Um, speak it into existence, but let me tell you, it is not. We are simply reading the text and taking from the text some spiritual principles here that in moments of great loss are moments of great love. I've been reading this book on how to parent teenagers. Anybody got teenagers in the room? You should read many books. You should have been reading books long ago. And now you're not only reading books, but also trying to get an Audible uh, book and also listening to a podcast because, my gosh, they're 14. Holy moly. But I was reading this book called uh, The Age of Opportunity by Paul David Tripp. Unbelievable book. My wife put it out on GroupMe this last week. He put an example in uh, one of the chapters that I would pass along to you. There's no students in the room if there are. Uh, welcome to this part of the, uh, the, uh, the service. But he does say that um, there was this story about these parents that caught their son uh, looking at pornography. And their immediate reaction was to fly off the handle and start to basically go, have we not done enough for you? Like, what is going on? Do you know better than this? Blah, 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 blah. And start just hammering at him. But they called him first. And they go, look, this is what we found. This is what he's doing. Like, I'm, I'm going to lose my mind on him. We've we've taught him better than this. He knows Jesus. And he says, before you do that, can you see God's providential hand in caring for your son and allowing for him to get caught? Can you, can you see God's providence in his life to shepherd him and to care for him in his deepest and darkest moments? Because when there's loss, he's providing his love. Man, that, let that just wash over all of us, not for just our kids, but for our own lives. That man, if there's ever a time where we're just dumb, and someone catches us or finds out or intervenes, may we see that not as a moment of shame, but of God's providence in our lives. Against all odds, the most like, unlikely of circumstances, God uses this loss to show his love just when he needed it. In silent disorientation, God doesn't make, always make his presence and provision Obvious, sometimes we have to exercise faith, and we have to choose to believe that he's doing something far beyond than what we feel or sense or see. This story invites us. What do we do with a God who has promised to provide, but yet there is a huge gap? A gap in his provision, a gap in what we expected, a gap in how. We thought he was going to provide and the timing that he would provide. What do we do with that God of the gap? And I would ask you, have you considered how he is providing for you now? Not in an audible way, but as the God of the background of your life. Now we could summarize the sermon right there and be done having an early lunch, but we're at the Grove, people. So we've got two more little sermonettes. The God of the background is not done providing, but uh, instead he is going to provide not just in loss, but in the improbable. And that's really what this next story is about. It's the longest chapter in Genesis, is this next chapter, chapter 24. And let me just break it down for you. It is not just Sarah's funeral and Sarah's death, but now the fruit of the womb of Abraham And Sarah is starting to come to center stage, and his name is Isaac. And as he comes to center stage, God is inviting us to remember something. We can find all of our fulfillment in all that we might create, and all that we might accumulate, and all that we might have in our own kids. That might be a means of self-fulfillment for us. But the story of Isaac and him now coming to the forefront is going to remind us that God's plan of redemption started long before you were here. And it will carry on long after you were here. God's story of fulfillment of the promises that he has made in your life do not stop with your death. They will carry on into your kids and into their kids and so on and so forth. No pressure, but we do have responsibility to walk this thing out as Abraham now did. And so here we are. We're met with this new chapter, this new person that's going to start taking center stage with Isaac, and it has been said of him that he is the promised one, right? He now then has to, if if the promise of God for him to have uh, descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky is going to be fulfilled Isaac better get married. And as we know, Isaac is now 37. I don't know about in this crazy world, but by the time you're 37, everyone's badgered you enough to like, figure out if you're going to get married or not. Can you even imagine what that would have been like in ancient times? At 37, he's still not married. So now, all of a sudden, Abraham's wife dies. He now starts to have some perspective. Like, oh man, okay, that, there's no guarantee for tomorrow we need to find Isaac a wife. And so the story would tell us that there are some stipulations that Isaac, that, excuse me, that Abraham makes on Isaac's bride. Two things does Abraham say with his servant as he says, hey, come and make a covenant with me and do this. I need you to find a wife for me. There's two things that need to happen. Number one, she can't come from Canaan. She can't come from this place because these people are going to get pushed out of this land. Did you just see how God provided for us, that, that, that piece of land that we just got? We got land. We weren't supposed to ever have land, and now we got land. God's going to push these people out. We cannot have him marrying a Canaanite. Instead, I need you to go back to my family. I need you to go back to my brother. I need you to go back to the, my, my family's household, and I need you to find a wife for my buddy and my boy, Isaac. And the servant says, well, what if she won't come here? Well, number one, she can't come from here. But number two, my son can't go up there. He cannot return back to Ur. God pulled us out of that. We can't return. So she's going to have to be willing to leave her family and come down to where we are. And the servant says, what if she's not willing? Great question. At that point, the servant says, well, you know, you'll be released from the oath. If she's not willing to come, she'll be released from the oath. Now, if you read this passage, did you, did you read this earlier? Did you read this a little bit? We just read a little bit. There's some, there's some, can we just pull out, a, I don't have time for it, but let me pull out a little detail. What is this thing with the dudes grabbing each other's thighs? <laughs> can we talk about this for a minute? Because the, the, the Hebrew language isn't thigh. Y'all feeling me? What is going on? I don't, like, make a covenant with y'all in this way. Like, when we sit down for a partnership commitment, we're not doing this. It's, it's strange, right? So here's what's going on. The commentaries are all over the place. But let me give you my best guess. It is a reminder. Remember the part of the body of a male that was um, cut as a sign of the covenant. Remember that? We had this whole discussion about circumcision? It was a great day. You guys remember that? You guys were all encouraged, especially the females in the house. You're like, mmm, warms my heart. Remember that? Like, so now they're going to remind themselves they are a people of the covenant. They're a people that has God's sign of approval on them. That's number one. So in other words, saying, hey, man, when we make a covenant, we're making a covenant like that. Number one, that has some real implications. Number two, that particular part of the body is used for reproduction. And God has something to say about the reproduction of Abraham and his household. And so now, number one, man, like this matters. And number two, our legacy is at stake. Let's get this right. I'm going to send you, servant, on a month-long journey back to my household with my camels and my possessions. I need you to find a wife for my, for, my, for my boy. You got it? That's basically what, I mean, there is no gray area here on what the servant is going to do, which is why he's like, oh man, this is like, this is for real. If I break this covenant, De- maybe death, maybe worse. So he wants to make sure that he can, ob- he can remain faithful to this covenant that Abraham is grabbing thighs on. He, Abraham, though, I want, to hear, I want you to hear this. As he does so, he holds to God's standards. He knows Isaac can't marry someone from here. He also knows that Isaac can't go up there. So, hey, man, she's got to leave her household, and she's got to come here. He's 37. Could you imagine? I just want you to put yourself in this situation. Let's say you're up in Abraham's family's world, up in Ur, and you've got a little daughter, and say she's 15-ish, 13, 14, 15, 16, and she's just blossoming and beautiful, and and your pride and joy Right? And then all of a sudden, she meets a stranger at a well. Right? And then he puts marks of ownership over her. He puts, like, some, some clasps on her, puts a nose ring and all that kind of stuff to say, like, that's her. Like, this is her. And then she returns home with all this new jewelry on. And she comes into the house. She's like, I met a man. I would like for him to stay here for a little bit. We're going to water his camel. It's going to be great. And they're like, what? Excuse me. Tell me who you met at the mall. Like, I'm just so confused. What is going on right now? And that's exactly this situation that Rebecca returns home. She's met the servant. The servant has put down a gauntlet because not only were the two stipulations improbable, but the servant prays this in verse 12. Read it with me. Verse 24, chapter 24. It might be coming up on the screen. And the servant said, O Lord, God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master Abraham. Behold, I am standing by the spring of the water, and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Let the young woman to whom I shall say, please let down your jar that I may drink, and who shall say, drink, and I will also water your camels, see the test? Not only does she have to be not from here, she has to be from there, she has to be willing to come down, but now we need to make sure that she's hospitable. Hospitality is the key virtue, both in Old Testament and New Testament times. I don't know what you're doing with your house, but it is like one of the main key virtues of character. All right, side note, coming back. She's got to then offer the camels water. Please let your down jar and I may drink. Who, uh, and who shall say drink and I will water your camels. Let her be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac. By this, by this sign, I shall know that you have shown steadfast love to my master. And look at the God of the background. Verse 13. Nope, just kidding. 15. Before he had finished praying... The God of the background says, behold, Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, came out with her water jar on her shoulder. The young woman was very attractive in appearance and a maiden whom no man had known. Oh, it seems like those, those qualifications are there, social qualifications are there. She went down to the spring and filled her jar and came up. And I'm sorry, I'm reading on. I don't think this is up here. Then the servant ran to meet her and said, please give me a little water to drink from your jar. That wasn't a part of the deal. But he's going. He sees her. He's like, this must be her. We got to get, get in front of her. And she said, drink, my lord. And she quickly let down her jar upon her hand and gave him a drink. And when she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I will draw water for your camels also until they are finished drinking. Now, that's no small task. One camel, if they went without water for a few days, which they're known to do in the Arabian Peninsula, would take down 25 gallons of water. And he's got multiple camels. So she has now committed herself to serve him, be hospitable to him in ways that absolutely are divine and given. The God of the background is moving. Now, in all of this, here's here's where my word for the students was going to come in. But I'll just make it a word for singles, I'll make it a word for marrieds, for widows, for divorced, and for students. Are you all ready? Abraham did not, in the midst of dire circumstances, all of a sudden start to compromise God's standards for his life. He, all, he couldn't have all of a sudden, well, man, like, I don't know, man. like We left there a long time ago. Surely a Canaanite woman will do. He does not start to, to somehow compromise on the high, dare I say, almost impossible standards of a good mate for life. I don't know if you're single in the house, or if you've got a student in the house, but I have um, major concerns for my two daughters. Major concerns for my two daughters, not just for their own holiness, not just that they would keep to the standards and the boundaries by which they have been set before them, but my goodness, when I look at their friends, and I see their friends, and I go, they love Fortnite. I don't know if they love Jesus. Oh, Lord, Help whoever their future husband or maybe husband might be, help their parents parent them well. Right now, like let them get them off the screens. And all the things that's necessary to prepare that young man for my eventual daughter. Ugh. I almost gagged just saying that. If you're single, if you're widowed, if you're divorced, do not lower the standards that God has set. You may think they're high, but they are protective for you. You may think that's impossible. A believer who goes to church, who loves Jesus, will treat me with dignity and respect. But yeah, yeah, she can't come from here, she, and he can't go there. She's got to be all these things, and she's got to be super hospitable. Well, man, that ain't going to work out. Oh, and yet, there she is, just as God from the background appointed. I'm lost in my notes, so bear with me. I would ask you this. What is your life presenting To you these days, where you need to remember the standards and boundaries in which God has granted you. Proverbs 22 and 28 say this Do not move the ancient landmark that your fathers have set. We talked a couple weeks ago with Sodom that what one generation tolerates, the next generation embraces. Let's set some, some hard boundary lines in the line for our own kids, and let's look back at the boundary lines of the faith of our fathers, not just our physical fathers, but our spiritual fathers, and let's not make the, make the mistakes of changing the boundary lines that God has set for us. Whether it not just be in relationships, but how about inner being and inner, inner transformation? The the secret habits that we have that no one can find out except the Lord sees. Are we changing the boundary markers in our own minds? Or are we setting to the standards that holiness is holiness the way Jesus defines it? Or have we redefined some things? We cut some parts out of the Bible that we don't prefer. Sermon number two has now ended. Sermon number three. God in the background is moving, right, amidst loss. He is moving amidst the improbable. And yet now, if we read all of uh, chapter 24, what we would find, and even into 25, that Isaac, at the age of 40, uh, marries Rebekah. She does leave her home, even though Laban is there. A little foreshadowing of Laban's character. Even though Laban is there and he's going, you sure you want to leave here? I know God's blessed this, but you sure? Laban gets in that and she's like, Yeah, yeah, I'm sure. I'm like, we're ready. This is it. Oh my gosh. Okay, she's ready. This is great. Okay. So she goes, she marries Isaac, and now the, the 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 page gets turned once more. And we have this bookend of our funerals here. Sarah dies, Isaac gets married, and now Abraham dies. At the age of 175, after not just that God said he was going to bless him. He now is counted in verse 20, chapter 24, verse 1 and 35. He is now described as blessed. Past tense. And I love what it says in this passage where it says in verse 8, Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age. An old man, full of years. He was gathered to his people. This too. The first episode, God promised land. God provided land. The second episode, God's going to promise offspring. Isaac now is married to Rebekah. Offspring comes in chapter 25 when we turn the page from Abraham's life now then to Jacob's life. Now episode three for the day. God has promised a few things for him that he would be a father of many nations. But he also said this back in Genesis 15:15. 15, 15, as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried at a good old age. We just love God to say that to you. I would love. I'm in my mid forties now, and I just feel like I talk and think about death all the time. I'm like my, I'm starting to talk about like ailments and pain and death, and I'm like thinking about IRAs and 401ks, and like what is going on with my life? I am becoming so boring. This is part of the progression. It's your future. I also said I would never move to the suburbs or get a minivan, and here you are. But nonetheless, man, what a beautiful statement over Abraham's life, that he breathed his last, that he died in a good old age, an old man full of years, and he was gathered to his people. This is God's way of saying, I have blessed them to the nth degree, and he has lived faithfully with me. But before he died, Abraham had concubines, plural, particularly a wife named Keturah, who then gave him seven more children. We can debate about all that, but we don't have time. But he had seven more children. If you read the list that's presented there, what you'll start to find is that all those kids of Abraham turn into tribes and nations exactly as God says. If you remember the end of the passage that was read earlier, right? Who buried Abraham? Isaac and Ishmael. Something about death that brings people together, your family that was ostracized, a funeral. Funeral is a place to reconcile, get together, and do what's right. And I know we live in a therapeutic culture, and you're supposed to leave here today with a smile on your face, maybe a giggle in your belly, but let me be a little more intentional than that. One day we're going to die. Unless Jesus comes back. Someone will stand up and do your funeral. Could be me. Could be your neighborhood group leader. Could be your husband. Could be your wife. They're going to stand up. And one of two things is going to be their landing place. The first scenario is that they're going to stand up and they're going to search for ways to tell people that you were a believer. That you walked faithfully. That God had his mark on you. They're going to search for them. They're going to look through your Bible. They're going to look for notes. They're going to go, man, I, and he went to church. He says he believes, but man, I, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. There's not a lot of evidence here. So they're going to search. And they're going to look at your internet history and they're going to look at your phone, and they're going to look at your bank account, and they're going to look at your Bible, and they're going to look at your kids, and your wife or your husband, going to look at how you did business, and they're going to gather all this evidence. And they're either going to search and reach, or you're going to live a life that is so obvious that they're not going to have to find ways to fill the time they're going to find ways to prune the stories down to like the most important one. The the one or two that so symbolizes this man or woman of faith that I could choose a hundred, I could choose a million of these stories, but i got to pick one or two. And you've got to choose today what kind of funeral that's going to be. Again, I know you're expecting a giggle and a little laughter as we go. But Abraham's life ends with a beautiful obituary and epitaph. Epitaph? Is that the right word? When it says, good old age, an old man full of years, and gathered to his people. When we live a life that is certain about a God who works in the background, moving circumstances here and there so that we would build into people that trust Him for whatever's in front of us because we can look back at a faithful God that has provided for us bountifully in the past. And if you have lost sight of that, let me remind you what we did earlier communion let that be the the memorial you want to know if god's going to provide for you in the future if he's done enough to sacrifice to forgive you of your sins if he's really going to come back on a white horse and slaughter all of his enemies are you is he really going to do that is he really going to make the earth brand new burn it up and make it new does he have an actual place reserved for you just like he said is salvation really only by Jesus, or oh, we just need to coexist and just feather in a little karma and a little well wishes here or there? Is it really worth the cost of following Jesus if you actually die for him? The future generations, maybe our generations, may be faced with that. Our kids or grandkids are not so far away from that. Maybe us. Depends on how evil this world gets. Is God going to intervene in the way that he said he's going to intervene? And we could all walk faithfully and be like, Man, I don't know. Oh, that, that scares me. Like the next generation, are, are they going to be okay? Or is this erosion of truth going to get the best of them? I don't know. I could start freaking out until I remember communion. And I remember that we're not the first people to go through this. And I remember what Jesus has done for us in the past is a secure and beautiful promise for what he'll do in the future. And if he sent his son to die for sinners, surely he's going to come back and make all this exactly as he intends. May we be a people like Abraham and Sarah and Isaac of faith, counting what he's done behind us so that we can look in full faith for what's ahead. Let's pray our Father in heaven, you waste nothing. You don't waste these other kids that Abraham fathered. You made good on the promise that he would be a father of many nations, even through those circumstances. And as your servant Abraham's life and now death invites us to think about the day that we will one day die. I pray that we would be a people that walk with deep trust in the future promises of God. Pray that we look back on past provisions to see how you will creatively provide in the future. And that we would be a people that are known by faith. Not formulas, not certainty, but faith. Trust in a God who walked on water and invited other guys to walk on water. And I pray that we would leave a legacy for our children. That we are living for eternity today. Deeply trusting in a God who has cut covenant with us. Not a covenant of dead animals, but a covenant of the promised Son of God, Jesus of Nazareth. Who died for sinners. Gave us his spirit to live like he did. Until one day he might come again. May we trust you.